Welcome to the Occult London podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring magic, mysticism, and Kabbalah, as well as other topics. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please take a moment to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes or wherever you tune in. It really helps more folks find us and helps us to continue to get this message out there. Also, don't forget to check out occultlondon.co.uk to subscribe. And if you're feeling extra supportive, consider backing us on Patreon or you can find us on Buy Me A Coffee. Every little bit goes a long way in keeping this show alive and a heartfelt thanks to all those who have supported us in this way. Now let's dive into today's episode. In this episode, I wanted to continue our history of magical talismans and amulets by talking a little bit about magic and talismans from the Arabic world. Talismans, amulets and magic are deeply rooted in Arabic and Islamic cultures and have an extensive and colourful history that likely originates from the ancient Mesopotamian civilizations and their beliefs. These beliefs were later refined and practiced by the Chaldeans, the Sabaeans and the Nabataeans who were thought to have been the some of the wisest and most powerful sages and magicians of their time. In the era preceding the advent of Islam, the cultivation and application of magic in the Arabic world was a commonplace thing, employed for multiple purposes ranging from, you know, the usual good things, health, wealth, good fortune but also um, obviously darker aspects as well that we've discussed in some of the other episodes. The people of that time would have revered magic as being a powerful implement capable of harnessing the power of spirits to accomplishing their goals. And these people and traditions also fostered a strong belief in the existence of spirits known as the jinn, who were supernatural entities that could be called upon for assistance by magical means. The jinn, or hidden ones, are a staple of Islamic mythology and Middle Eastern lore, and are often depicted as spiritual beings composed of a smokeless flame or an elusive matter capable of assuming both animal and human form, but also possessing very powerful magical powers. These capabilities extended to giving them the ability to grant wishes but also inflict harm. In the Islamic tradition Allah is meant to have brought the jinn into existence from a smokeless flame alongside angels and humans and interestingly they were meant to have had free will, so very similar to humans in the way that they had the option to use their powers for good or for evil. Their existence is acknowledged in the Quran in Surat al-Jinn, the 72nd chapter, and Surat al-Nas, which portrays them as being pre-human entities capable of perceiving and interacting with humans whilst also remaining invisible unless they wish otherwise. For example, the following verses state, And he created the jinn from a smokeless flame of fire. And also, And the jinn were created before of intensely hot fire. 
They're also characterised by the poet Tarafa bin al-Alb as follows. The jinn, they dwell in the deserts and remote places. They are swift and powerful and they can move unseen and unheard. They have the ability to grant wishes and bestow blessings, but they can also bring misfortune and ruin. The pre-Islamic Arabs held a held the power of divination also in very high esteem. That was a form of magic that could obviously foretell the future. And the prevalent method of them using this was reading patterns in the sand, which some people kind of argue is a precursor to the practice of geomancy. Upon the arrival of Islam, numerous such beliefs were either forsaken or gradually dissipated, while others were assimilated and absorbed by various burgeoning Islamic religious and spiritual sects. And these esoteric doctrines really reached their zenith during the Middle Ages, um, where the Islamic culture began to blossom when you had renowned philosophers, scholars and sages penning numerous treaties in Arabic on magic, esoteric knowledge, astronomy, astrology, philosophy and other sciences for the benefit of their students. With the passing of Prophet Muhammad in 632 AD, Islam propagated beyond the Arab populace and some of these archaic magical practices continued to permeate the empire. Whilst the administration and leadership and, and also scholars largely conformed to these kind of Islamic paradigms, ancient customs gradually uh, began to change and disappear. And society transformed into a real centre of scholarship with the city of Baghdad in Iraq emerging as the epicentre for translating ancient works from Greece, Persia, India and China. And Muslims maintain their faith in divine intervention for protection against evil spirits known as shayatin, which encompassed fallen angels and also malignant genie. The primordial belief in the evil eye also continued and magic in the Islamic world was practical and also kind of attracted a big kind of substantial scholarly curiosity. But despite the overlap, scholars differentiated between magic, which was known as seer, and kihana, which was known as divination. The study of the occult properties of letters and numbers also held really considerable significance and the art of writing was also deemed a really powerful divination tool with various different texts dedicated to magical alphabets and cryptic writing. And a distinctive aspect of Islamic magic was the al-waqf, which was a magical square featured prominently in many Islamic magical manuals. Alchemy was also, also practised with the ultimate goal being the transmutation of base metals into gold, which was a process that was believed to confer eternal life, and we will be doing an episode on alchemy at some point. Despite Quranic injunctions against talismans of the pagans, um, Arabs and early Muslims continued to invoke their powers to ward off evil spirits and 
often inscribing them with verses from the Holy Book of the Quran as well. Magical talismans and amulets in the pre-Islamic and Islamic world hold a really important place in the culture as well. For centuries, these mystical artefacts were cherished for their protective and healing virtues, which was a legacy dating back to the pre-Islamic era. And this belief in the metaphysical properties of particular objects became integral to Arab culture and also bore out many diverse applications across the Middle East and North Africa. Talismans and amulets played a significant role in the tapestry of Islamic culture. Um, the renowned 9th century Persian philosopher and physician Al-Kindi penned a treatise on their mystical properties called Diradis Stellarum, or the Rays of the Sun. This work was widely disseminated in Latin from the 13th century through the Renaissance as well. And Al-Kindi basically in this book argued that all material things in the natural world, the stars included, send out rays. And likewise, an individual's words, thoughts and actions emit similar rays, suggesting that through ritual, through meditation, through prayer, through sacrifices, um, an individual could exert influence on the cosmos. Through magic, he argued that the magician could weave through this cosmic harmony of interconnected rays, therefore channeling the virtues of celestial bodies, planets, constellations and stars down into the terrestrial objects for magical purposes. According to Al-Kindi, there were two types of generation in the cosmic order. Natural generation, or those things that happen often, the mundane world, and the unusual, defined as when a kind of being is generated from such a kind of matter in an unusual way, implying obviously magic. When creating a magical or amulet or talisman, he suggested that the magician should first imagine the form of the thing which he wants to impress into some matter, and the materials chosen would correspond with specific planets or constellations and would then be imbued with a unique essence replicating the act of creation. This idea of first imagining the form of the thing he wants to impress obviously aligns closely with the Western mystery tradition of crafting a thought form. Um, this thought form becomes a vessel imbued with a higher spiritual force, the true purpose of a material talisman. As the magician W.E. Butler wrote in his really good book, The Training and Work of the Magician, So it is held, an object which is to be used as a talisman must first be purified, the mixed magnetisms it has picked up in its travels must be banished from it, then, by will and thought, a fresh charge of living energy is poured into it, and this charge of energy is, in some mysterious way, stored in the material talisman. Anyone wearing the talisman will be affected by it, and tuned to its own vibration. They will tend to feel, think and act in accordance with the intention of the maker of the talisman. So as you can see, it's this idea of, imbu again, imbuing this material 
object with the will or the intention and with this divine energy that then manifests it and is kind of spreads that energy out into the aura of the wearer. During the period of the Ottoman Empire, talismans and amulets were very common and sultans and high-ranking officials often carried these objects as safeguards and sources of good fortune. So one example of this is the Hand of Fatima, which was a widely recognised talisman in Islamic culture that purportedly offered protection against the evil eye. This was named after Fatima Zara, the daughter of the Prophet, and its design featured an open palm adorned with an eye in the centre. In addition to their protective and healing qualities, talismans and amulets all bore, also bore deep significance in Islamic culture. So many designs incorporated Islamic calligraphy and geometric patterns. Uh, they had potent symbols in Islamic art and architecture. Arabic words and Quranic verses are frequently used in their design, believed to offer protective effects. The phrase Bishmela, in the name of God, which is the inaugural word in the Quran, is often inscribed on these mystical objects as well to invoke divine protection. Historical accounts also provide lots of evidence of using talismans and amulets in the Islamic world. For example, during the reign of Umayyad Caliphate in the 7th and 8th century, it was common for soldiers to wear talismans and amulets for protection in battle. The use of talismanic flags was also prevalent. So during the Islamic Golden Age from the 8th to the 13th century, scholars and medical practitioners advocated the efficacy of talismans and amulets for their healing properties. The Seal of Solomon is also a prominent example of a magical talisman in Islamic history. And Islamic tradition narrates that this talisman was a divine gift to King Solomon, granting him dominion over humans and jinn. And the Seal of Solomon was inscribed with Arabic text and symbols and has been employed you know, throughout history by lots of different magicians and traditions um, for different purposes, including protection, exorcism and healing. Despite the passage of time, the use of talismans and amulets within this culture um, did remain slightly contentious. So some experts believed in their efficacy, utilising them for you know, day-to-day -day problems and good luck, etc. Whereas others perceived them as being very un-Islamic and dismissing them as superstition. But notwithstanding the two contrasting views, the use of these artefacts became kind of universal and cut across you know the different cultures beyond their protective and healing functions talismans and amulets significantly influence islamic art and architecture as well islamic calligraphy often employed in creating talismanic designs is amazing to look at and if you ever get the chance to go to some of these ancient um, mosques etc it's absolutely stunning uh, to stand within them. The intricate patterns and the designs inherent in the architecture um, often were used to, in to inspire and design talismans and amulets as well. And their symbolism filled the mosques, the palaces 
and also everyday objects like textiles and pottery. And this practice extended across the Middle East, North Africa, reaching out to parts of the world like Southeast Asia as well. So amid these kind of, there's lots of different ways they were used um, and they really kind of retained their importance in the culture and were treasured for their protective powers. Their symbols and designs often, as I mentioned, having this very amazing calligraphy and geometric patterns as well as sacred words within them. To maximise the power of a talisman, it was typically inscribed with the names of sacred figures such as God, angels, saints and the jinn, alongside specific Quranic verses and astrological symbols. One example of this is given by Ibn al-Hajjaj, who was a revered scholar born in Nishapur, Iran around 817 and passed away in 875 in Nasrabad. And he was renowned for his extensive knowledge of the hadith, the actions and sayings of the prophets. And he suggested an intriguing strategy for military leaders inscribing um, passages from the Quran onto a flag doused with a blend of rosewater, musk and amber. And this was to be done during the hour of the sun when the constellation of Libra was rising. And carrying this talismanic flag into battle, he believed, would ensure a victorious outcome over their adversaries and non-believers. The 11th century philosopher Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, who was a medieval Islamic theologian, philosopher, magician and mystic, also wrote extensively about talismans in his books, The Alchemy of Happiness and The Revival of Religious Sciences. And he regarded magic as a potent tool that could be used for good or evil and held the individual responsible for its ethical use. Al-Ghazali elaborated on the use of talismans in Islamic magical practice, suggesting that certain combinations of letters and numbers could possess spiritual power and could be employed to create talismans with specific effects. Al-Ghazali's perspectives on talismans were significantly shaped by his Sufi beliefs, which underscored the use of spiritual practices to attain higher consciousness and divine connection. And he held that talismans could serve as a means to spiritual enlightenment and constituted a real important facet of a mystical tradition. Nevertheless, Al-Ghazali also kind of cautions against talismans' misuse emphasising that their use should align with Islamic teachings and under a qualified spiritual teacher's guidance. And he contended that over-reliance on talismans could foster superstition and distract from the true path to spiritual enlightenment. And the real focus of the spiritual journey should be self-knowledge leading to genuine enlightenment. As per Al-Ghazali, the talisman is merely a vehicle for the true spiritual essence it contains. As he illustrates in a text known as the letter to a disciple, and I quote, Iman Abu Hamid al-Ghazali woke up one morning and offered his prayers. He asked for his white shroud, kissed it, and stretched himself out full length, then saying, Lord, I obey willingly. 
he breathed his last. Underneath his headrest they found the following verses. Say to my friends when they look upon me dead, weeping for me and the mourning me in sorrow. Do not believe that this corpse you see is myself. In the name of God I tell you it is not I. I am a spirit and this is naught but flesh. It was my abode and my garment for a time. I am a treasure by a talisman kept hid, fashioned of dust which served me as a shrine. I am a pearl which has left its shell deserted. I am a bird and this body was my cage. Whence have I now come forth and it is left as a token? Praise to God who hath now set me free and prepared for me my place in heaven. Until today I was dead, though alive in your midst. Now I live in truth, with the grave clothes discarded. Today I hold conversations with the saints above, with no veil between. I see God face to face, I look upon lo il marfus, and therein I read, whatever was and is and all that is to be. Let my house fall in ruins, lay my cage in the ground, Cast away the talisman, it is a token no more. Lay aside my cloak, it was but my outer garment. Place them all in the grave, let them be forgotten. I have passed on my way and you are left behind. Your place of abode was no dwelling face for me. Think not that death is death, nay it is life. A life that surpasses all we could dream of here. While in this world, here we are granted sleep. Death is but sleep, sleep that shall be prolonged. Be not frightened when death draweth nigh. It is but the departure for this blessed home. Think of the mercy and love of your Lord. Give thanks for his praise and come without fear. What I am now, even so shall you be, for I know that you are even as I am. The souls of all men come forth from the gods. The bodies of all are compounded alike. Good and evil alike it was yours. I give you now a message of good cheer. May God's peace and joy forevermore be yours. That's a quote from Al-Ghazali from his letter to a disciple. But as you can see from that particular quote, he he is talking very much um, about this idea that the physical... um, is a is a vehicle for the true spiritual essence that it contains. He's talking about how the body is this vehicle for the spiritual power. Likewise, with the talisman, it is a vehicle for uh, the spiritual powers to be invoked and brought into it. Another interesting person from this time is Ahmed Al Buni, who was a renowned Islamic philosopher and mystic from the 13th century. And he holds a really prominent position among scholars of Islamic mysticism and contributed significantly to to Islamic magic. And he saw magic as being a potent tool for connecting with God and achieving spiritual enlightenment. His principal work is the Sham al-Marif al-Kubra, or the great son of Gnosis, and Mabza Ubsal al-Khikmah, the source of the foundation of wisdom, 
which was written around 1225 CE and are both kind of major treatises on the science of talismans and amulets in Islamic esotericism. The Shams al-Marif is a fascinating grimoire of Arab magic and it holds significant influence uh, on par really with texts like the Picatrix um, and the work encompasses basically two volumes. So you've got Sham al-Marif al-Kubra and Shams al-Marif al-Sugra with the, the second one being the larger of the two. The text kind of blends different elements. It's got magic squares, there's Arabic letter magic, Quranic verses and the names of God in conjunction with specific astrological timings. And its kind of unique significance lies in the correspondences because it establishes between the 28 letters of the Arabic alphabet and the 28 Arabic mansions of the moon. And these connections kind of really greatly enhance the text's magical potency. For those of you who are not familiar with what I'm talking about, the mansions of the moon are basically a sequence of 28 distinct astrological houses or zones in the sky that the moon traverses over a lunar month. And these mansions are basically essential, particularly in the Arabic grimoires such as the Shams and the Pigtrix. Each mansion has a unique energy and influences certain aspects of life such as love, wealth, health and success. So for example the first mansion is called Alnath which is associated with beginnings, good fortune and success in business and ventures. The mansions of the moon are often used by astrologers and magicians um, and are used to really determine the optimal times for performing specific rituals or spells based on the intended outcome and this can kind of be viewed as a more targeted version really of the the planetary hours and days that we often see in you know other areas of western occultism the mansions are also used to interpret dreams and omens uh, as well as in horoscopes and divination so they served as a really potent tool for harnessing universal energies to accomplish one's goals. The Shams al-Marif isn't just a manual of talismanic recipes, it also kind of gives a lot of esoteric knowledge and insights into Sufi wisdom. And Albuni also kind of talks a lot about kind of being able to harness the spiritual energy and connect it with divine forces in this text and how different talismans and amulets can be used to achieve a broad range of goals from you know healing illnesses to acquiring wealth and protection. Albuni's approach to talismans was was kind of heavily influenced by his Sufi beliefs um, emphasizing the significance of spiritual practices, prayer and symbolic language and imagery to access higher states of consciousness and he he also sees talismans as being a means of tapping into divine power using symbols, ritual action and magical squares. Magical squares, um, also known as Kamiya or Kwamiya with a Q, um, hold a really powerful place in, in Arabic magic. Um, basically they're diagrams comprising of a grid of numbers each with each row, column and diagonal adding up to the same sum. Each number in the grid is associated with a planetary or an elemental symbol and 
the arrangement of these symbols within the grid is thought to possess mystical and magical properties. The grid usually contains a specific number of cells which vary depending on the purpose of the magical square. So for example, a 3x3 magical square would contain 9 cells while a 4x4 square would contain 16 cells. Each magical cell would be each magical square, sorry, would be linked to a specific planet or an element and it would be utilized in rituals and spells to invoke the power and influence of that planet or aspect. And the arrangement of the numbers and symbols is believed basically to, to represent the hidden or spiritual forces that govern the universe. Um, and through particular arrangement of numbers and etc., you can achieve your desired outcome by essentially manipulating those forces according to your intention. In the Shams al-Marif, there's lots of examples of talismans but there's one particular one I wanted to mention called the Al-Alim talisman and this talisman represented various names from the 99 divine names each each reflecting a distinctive connection to the sacred and this was all in, in kind of the format of the the magical squares so emblazoned on the front of the talisman was the divine name, or Al-Alim, the all-knowing, the omniscient. This name is engraved within a magical square, and then encircling the edge of this talisman would be a prayer invoking light, which can be translated as, O oh Allah, O oh possessor of limitless knowledge, the understanding possessed by all scholars merely mirrors your attribute of omniscience. Because only your knowledge is truly absolute. You are the one who is aware of every detail. The Shams also elaborates on the purpose of the talisman, stating, Those who recite this supremely divine name will be blessed by God, exalted be he, with the ability to grasp the finest subtleties of knowledge and uncover their deepest secrets. So the talisman was designed to educate its user about the profound intricacies of mystical knowledge. Also, there were timing was important with this particular one because um, you're meant to actually create it when Jupiter um, holds a high level of significance or dignity and it was believed that the user could delve into and comprehend the most profound esoteric sciences through its power. Despite his work on talismans being very much celebrated during the time, um, it was kind of uh, also criticised quite heavily um, for kind of promoting superstitious and magical thinking. Um, but nevertheless, you know, it's a very interesting text to um, to read. And a, an English translation of it came out, you know, relatively recently, which I, you know, highly recommend if people want to check that out. Another interesting um, figure from this time is Thabit ibn Kuwara, who was a an Arabic scholar of the 10th century. And he left a really indelible mark on the field of mathematics, astrology, medicine and astronomy during the Islamic Golden Age. And his profound understanding of these subjects was deeply rooted in the Hermetic and Neoplatonic perspectives on the cosmos as a unified and divine entity. 
Thabit Ibn Quara's expertise extended also to the realm of talismanic and amulet magic, which he considered to be a, a really big part of astronomy. So when the, within the Hararian tradition, the teachings of Hermes Trismegistus, who we mentioned in the Egyptian episode, hold really great rever- uh, reverence, and he's regarded as being a prophet and a sage. And this reverence heavily influenced um, Thabit Ibn Quara's grasp of the arts and scientists. And his most notable work, which is De Imaginibus, or On Images, becomes a really important text in the realm of astrological magic, leaving a really lasting impact on prominent figures such as Albertus Magnus, uh, Marsilio Ficino and Cornelius Agrippa during the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Thabit Ibn Quara emphasised the significance and the importance of magic and astrology when he wrote, Aristotle said that whoever studies philosophy, geometry and all knowledge but remains a stranger to astrology will be hindered and burdened because the more valuable geometry and the higher philosophy is the science of images. And when he says the science of images, he's really talking about uh, this kind of talismanic magic. This idea of astrology's vital role in the understanding of philosophy and geometry is is very important. Um, In his book, De Imaginibus, and there is an English translation of this one out there, um, Thabit Ibn Quara outlines a process similar to modern techniques of talismanic magic. So he emphasises that a talisman should be created during a propitious celestial event with one's birth horoscope, potentially influencing its efficacy. So the creator of the talisman had to maintain unwavering focus and absolute certainty. Any doubts or fears or distractions would render the talisman powerless. In one passage in this particular text, he describes creating a talisman or amulet to rid your house of scorpions, um, which isn't a problem that probably most of us in the West have, but uh, I imagine it was probably quite a big issue if if you live in a hot country, uh, and probably still is. The process he describes is basically involves various astrological alignments, specific materials, and also a ritual incantation during the talisman's burial. Um, And this passage kind of showcases these magical practices and how it kind of worked. And I just wanted to quote, If you desire to do this, begin the work with Scorpio rising and make the image of a scorpion out of copper, tin, lead, silver or gold as you wish. Engrave in it the name of the rising sun and its lord and the lord of the hour of the day in which you do this and the name of the moon and let the moon be in Scorpio. Make the ascendance as unfortunate as you can and also make unfortunate the lord of the ascendant, placing it in the hours of death if you can do so. And also make the Lord of the Ascendant as unfortunate as you can, or conjoin it with the infortune in the fourth or seventh house. When you have done this, bury it upside down, that it is with the head downward, and say while you are burying it, This is the sepulchre of this, 
and all its kind, and they shall not enter into this place. Bury it in the middle of the place from which you wish that kind of creature to flee, or in the house where they live, or the place where they gather. So as you can see from that, it's incredibly specific in terms of the astrological um, relevance. We did a whole episode on astrological magic, but um, you need to do it when Scorpio is rising. You need to use specific materials, so like copper, tin, lead, silver, or gold. Again, nice range of materials depending on um, on your budget. Uh, you then engrave the name of this rising sign and its lord, and then the lord of the hour of the day in which you do this, and then the moon, and also the moon needs to be in Scorpio as well. And then it goes into much more complicated stuff. But as you can see, it's really, really specific. It's almost like a recipe um, or a, a formula um, that you need to follow all of these things in order for this to particularly work. If anyone does have a problem with scorpions and uh, you know wants to try that out and let us know if it works, that would be great as well. <laughs> um, another text that's quite interesting um, from this time is the Picatrix. Um, and this is significant in talismanic magic and deserves special attention, really. Um, this is a medieval grimoire which is believed to have been initially composed in Arabic during the 11th century. And it holds a, a you know very rich history. It went through lots of different translations into Spanish and Latin during the 13th century and also served as a comprehensive guide to talisman, amulet creation and astrological magic. The Picatrix draws heavily from lots of different magical traditions, including the Arabic, Islamic, Hellenistic, and Persian. Um, so, but despite not being exclusively rooted in Islamic culture, um, the Arabic scholar Maslamar al-Majrij famously described the Picatrix as a divine gift to humanity when he wrote, this is the greatest gift that God gave to humanity that they might seek to know and understand. Knowledge has three properties. It always gains and never diminishes. It fosters virtuous habits. It does not increase unless the power, the knower wills it and delights in it and seeks after it with reason and will. This um, obviously the endorsement by Al-Majriti um, obviously kind of underscores how important it was um, at the time. And the Picatrix significantly influenced the development of talismans and amulets within the Islamic world, drawing inspiration from Thabit ibn Qara's earlier work. But it also incorporates Hellenistic and Persian magical traditions into it, and it served as really a kind of invaluable source of knowledge for European occultists during the Renaissance. It's sophisticated and quite complicated system of magic and also as i mentioned profound astrological symbolism um, appealed to lots of scholars from that time and kind of really has a big influence on a lot of those magicians from that period in the picatrix there's a fascinating array of talismans and amulets designed to harness the celestial bodies and natural forces for various different purposes such as protection, love, healing and success. Again they're crafted from many different um, materials um, and often have multiple materials as well uh, as I said before it's kind of different budgets basically. 
and they're often adorned with different symbols and inscriptions. And it also provides detailed instructions on their creation, emphasising the importance of astrological timing, the requisite purification rituals before and after um, as well. One particular talisman documented in the Picatrix is one for winning court cases that was believed to have originated in medieval Europe. Fashioned from tin, it featured an engraving of Jupiter holding a scepter while seated on a throne, surrounded by the symbols of Sagittarius and Pisces. The Arabic words Kalika Shaha Lila, the throne belongs to God, are inscribed along the talisman's edge, while the maker also recited specific prayers and incantations directing their focus towards Jupiter. Um, another another one that's quite interesting in the Picatrix also involves using you know animal parts, which are you know in no way in, endorsing, but it it was quite a big thing um, of that time. Um, so this one involved using a pig brain fluid on a sheet of lead to induce your neighbours to move away. Um, the ritual was meant to be conducted during the hour and day of Saturn with the second face of Capricorn ascending and Saturn present within it. Um, the prepared sheet would be placed in the desired location, which would then remain uninhabited as long as the sheet stood there. I imagine the smell from that would be pretty bad to, to kind of drive your neighbours out of the area as well, so it probably worked on multiple levels. Despite the controversial nature of talismans and amulets within within this culture um the picatrix just does play like a really crucial part in shaping the magical practices and its influence is still kind of discernible um today so it's a very kind of interesting resource for studying the historical development of talismans and amulets when within that world and also the broader um kind of history of magic and astrology going into you know the renaissance period which we'll be talking about in a, in a, a few episodes so in conclusion you know we can say that you know talismans amulets they hold like a really big significance in pre-islamic and islamic cultures as these really powerful objects of protection and conduits for spiritual power and despite variations in culture and religion their use continues to evolve. That's all we've got time for in this episode. However, in the next episode, we will be continuing our discussion on the history of magical talismans and amulets by looking at the magical talismans of the Far East. So if you have enjoyed this episode and want to find out more, then please stay tuned. I want to finish this episode with a poem by the Arabic poet Ibn Hal Farad, called Compared to My Dawn. Compared to my dawn, the long day's light is like a flash next to my drinking place. The wide ocean is a drop, so the whole of me faces and seeks my all, while part of me with bridle and reins draws my other part. One who was above below, while above was below him, 
every direction submitted to his guiding countenance. Thus earth's below is ether's above, because what I split is closed, though splitting the closure is my obvious way. There is no ambiguity, union is the source of certainty, there is nowhere as space only separates, there is no number, for counting cuts like the blade edge, nor is there time since limit is a timekeeper's idolatry. There is no equal in this world or the next who could decree to raise what I raised up or command to carry out the decree of my command. There is no rival in either place and due to harmony you will not see disparity in humanity's creation. <laughs>